Well, good morning. Is everybody warm enough? Well, okay. Well, take your word for it. I, I'm wondering if, uh, before I make my way over there, I'm wondering if you've noticed anything about our church this morning. There's no pictures on the walls. Who said that? Okay, you're, you are in charge of security from now on. I just... <laughs> Because I know a lot of people didn't notice it. In fact, well, the reason that there's no more pictures on the wall is because we're starting Genesis. And uh, every week, there's going to be an icon that makes its way to the front of the stage. Ooh, because it's lightning. Get it? Um, there's going to be an icon that uh, either Brian or I will stand behind. This is actually going to serve for the first two, Brian's message next week and, and this one that we have this morning. And uh, it, it's, it, the design behind this is for you to be able to look at this picture and remember what the message was about. Remember the theme of the message. They'll go from here up to there. And uh, by the time we're done with Genesis, this entire front wall will be finished, which will give us the opportunity to do a quick walk through Genesis by way of review when, when we're done several months from now. And then we'll put them back up in the order that, uh, that they were before. At least we think we can manage that. Uh, taking them down, it occurred to us that, uh, anyway, we, we don't need to go into that. I, I am truly glad to be back. I was, uh, I was gone, you know, to the Middle East. And um, uh, I can't go into a lot of detail about what happened there. But it was, uh, it was everything and more. Uh, when uh, everything that we had hoped for, everything that we had planned, uh, some of the things that we would have planned had we known how to plan them, actually, they ended up knocking on our door instead of us having to knock on their door. Uh, I, I spoke at a, a meeting Friday morning and then another meeting Saturday night, and uh, now there's an additional opportunity to uh, perhaps uh, the door may be open in, an, in another neighboring country. So... Uh, thank you to those of you who prayed. Um, I, I wish I could tell you the whole story about the way God actually worked there, but it was a remarkable thing. Good morning. There you go. It's, uh, I want to start by saying, you can see there on the screen, that, that we're starting our series on Genesis today, and this is part one, and entitled, The Beginning of Evil. And we'll be looking at Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. Today we're going to embark on a journey that we've been promising for a long time now through God's Word together that will take, as always, several months to complete. And I'm just wondering by way of a show, I hope you don't mind raising your hand, how many were here back in 2014 when we did Genesis back then? How many remember that study very few hands, and, and that was what we were suspecting. Genesis is such a foundational book. It, it gives us insight into all of the rest of God's Word, and I'll explain to you how that works uh, this morning. But um, we're, we're going to start through Genesis, and, and it's going to take us several months. It's still the beginning of a new year, at least it is for me, in the life of our church, and it made sense to the elders and, and to me to, to take on the theme beginnings. You can see that up there, which is really the meaning of the word Genesis, uh, so that we can gain some perspective from God about how to start out well, how to begin well as we launch into this year. One sure way of starting out well would be to read God's Word together. And since this is the first, uh, the first 
session in, in Genesis, in the series of messages, that means that there's no review to share with you. So if you would, please stand with me, and we'll jump right in by reading the passage together. If you're able, read it aloud with me, please. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Thank you. Uh, with that uh, uh, very encouraging passage behind us, as you take your seats, I'm sorry that we have to start Genesis this way, but we have to create some context for where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. And as you take your seats, and I see that you've done that already, whisper a prayer. Take a moment, whisper a prayer, ask God to speak to you. This is your opportunity to ask God to open your eyes to the truth. And, and you asking him to do that for you, I think is more powerful than me doing that. So I want you to go away with the word of God firmly implanted in your mind and in your heart. By way of introduction to our, our time in Genesis, let me just say as followers of Jesus, we tend to spend a lot of our time in the New Testament epistles and it seems to me that we sometimes forget how important the Old Testament is to our understanding of God. The Old Testament and Genesis in particular are so important to our understanding of the New Testament that I'd go so far as to say that much of the New Testament is going to be a mystery to us if we don't get a good handle on what happens in the book of Genesis. In fact, it goes beyond that. I can freely say that the book of Genesis is a vital part not only of what it takes to understand the rest of the Bible, it is also a vital part of what it takes to know and truly experience God. And if you're looking for a more tangible way to illustrate what I just said, we could say quite simply that if the truth of the New Testament is a house, then the book of Genesis is the foundation upon which that house is built. It's the groundwork that God laid for everything else he would do. Or if the New Testament is a garden, then the book of Genesis is the seedbed in which all the flowers and, and fruit trees that bloom and bear fruit in the New Testament begin to grow. That's where it all begins, this book of Genesis. Since Genesis is the seedbed of the truths of God's Word, the title of every one of the messages that we'll have, every one of our sessions in Genesis, will start with the words, the beginning of every one of the titles will start out like that, and it'll be filled in, uh, just as this one did today, the beginning of evil. And this morning, we'll use our time to talk about where evil actually began. We'll do that this morning. But in other sessions in Genesis, the title will be metaphorical. And by that, I mean, for example, the title for next week will be The Beginning of Good, but the message really won't recount for us when good began. And I say that because good has existed as long as God has existed, which is since the ages of eternity past. It, good has always been there in the person of God himself. But human beings first encounter the goodness of God during the seven days of creation. And you'll, you'll hear it as we make our way through. God continually says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And finally he says, it was very, 
Very good. Other titles will come along as we go. The beginning of, of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of death, the beginning of God's regret, the beginning of forgiveness, and the beginning of God's faithfulness will follow as we continue to study Genesis throughout the year. All titles. So just so you know, this morning, for example, we really will be talking about where evil began but next week when we talk about the beginning of good, we won't literally be talking about when good, when good began. We'll be talking about where, where people first saw it, where it's first emphasized in God's word. Simply put, God is going to use Genesis to introduce himself to us. That's what Genesis is all about. This is who I am. I'm pleased to meet you, our God is going to say to us over these next many weeks. But his introduction won't come to us in the form of systematic theology. It will come in story form, <laughs> just so you know. You know, I talk with people sometimes who say, I, I just don't understand the Bible. And when they say that, what they usually mean is that there's a particular passage, perhaps, that they've been looking at, and they just can't figure out what it means. They read, they've read it over and over, but they can't figure out what it means. And, of course, if that happens often enough, you can come to the conclusion that the Bible is just too difficult to understand. It's just too hard, you might say, with a touch of frustration in your voice and maybe a, you know, a little frown on your face. And I don't mean to make fun of that because I know what it's like. I do. I know what it's like to come to the Bible expecting God to speak to you, only to go away full of confusion, with nothing but confusion. And we know that God is never the author of confusion, and so that can be really trying when that happens to you. And if it happens often enough, we're likely to decide to fill our spare time with something else that's easier to understand, like politics or cats, for example. I, you know, I, I don't know. The truth is there are several reasons why you might find the, the Bible difficult to understand. One reason that you might struggle to understand the Bible has to do with something called cultural literacy. And, and, and I don't want this to be a, a techno class, but it would be a good idea, I think, for you to understand what cultural literacy is when you find yourself attempting to understand God's Word. Let me put a picture up on the, on the screen, and, and I'll say what, uh, what used to be said back in the day. This is your brain. And for some of you, that won't mean anything at all, but some of us are old enough to remember an ad campaign from a number of years ago that followed the this is your brain picture with another picture. So this is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs. Get it? Egg? Scrambled egg? This is your... Well, if you don't get it, then it's possible that you're one of the people that they were targeting with that ad campaign. <laughs> did I say that out loud? I did, didn't I? I'm sorry. I, I, so this is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs, and apparently this is your brain on drugs with a side of bacon. Um, but don't be distracted by the bacon, because we're not talking about bacon. We're talking about cultural literacy. Let me, let me come at it from a, another direction. If I were to say to you that I spent some time this past week listening to bread, some of you, particularly those that are younger than I am, <laughs> might think that I, I'm, I'm way too into my toaster. I, I don't know. Or, or maybe that I had a few too many sides of bacon with my scrambled eggs back in the day when I was old enough to watch that other ad campaign. So you may think that I'm way into my toaster and, and to 
that I have to say that our toaster is a nice toaster. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Some of you have seen it. I, I know it's, a, it's stainless steel. It has black trim. It looks a lot like that one right there. It has four slots for bread and, and a bagel setting and a toaster pastry setting. You just have to push the button. I mean, it's, it's, it's just amazing. So I, I'm not complaining about my toaster, but I do have to admit to you that my toaster is not captivating enough for me to stand there and listen to it. Others of you, those my age perhaps, or, or, or a little older or a little younger, hearing me say that I was listening to bread just might think, it don't matter to me. You remember that song? Because, because bread was a, well, it was a rock group that, that, that performed from between 1970 and 1977. So if you were around for that time, then you're literate enough to know that when I say I was listening to bread, you instantly understood that. Others of you that don't know that Bread was a group who are not culturally literate for the years 1970 to 1977 would struggle to understand what that old man is talking. I certainly don't mean to embarrass you, uh, even though I, I may have, but, but in this context, I, I, I have to say, for example, that, that what God's covenant, if you don't know what God's covenant with Abraham was and what it meant in the Old Testament, then the book of Romans is going to be a mystery you. Please hear what I'm saying. I have no intention of embarrassing you. I'm just trying to create a hunger for the study that we're about to embark on this morning. I can admit to you this morning that I've lived for years with a deep, deep hunger to understand God's Word. And, and I hope and I trust that the same hunger is present in you. And if that hunger isn't part of your experience right now, then my fond wish for you is that by the time we're done with Genesis, it'll be there in full force. You'll long to know more and to understand more once we've finished the book of Genesis. There's another reason that you might find yourself struggling to understand the Bible, and we can illustrate that with this book that my son gave to me a, a few Christmases ago. It, uh, uh, anyway, uh, because I'm struggling to understand it, and, and I'm just hoping that you can give me some advice uh, shed some light on some things for me. I, I want to I read a short passage to you from the book, and, uh, and then I have some questions, if, if that's all right. Uh, it's, it's a note uh, that, that somebody has written. I've spoken to you and, and heard your voice, Dietrich, dearest. Can you still remember every word we exchanged? Hey, you said, what's the matter? And oh, how the tears rolled down my cheeks. Although I cried so, tried so hard not to cry and certainly hadn't done so since the lunch break. And at first you didn't understand what, it was, what, I, what I was driving at. I, I put it so stupidly, didn't I? But then you laughed. I, it was so lovely, that laugh. To think that you could laugh like that. I'm, I'm grateful to you for that most of all. When you laughed and told me not to worry, I knew all at once that it wasn't true, what grandmother had said, and that all my worrying and weeping had been quite unnecessary, and that you were all right and, and glad that I'd called you. That was why you laughed, wasn't it? Because you were glad. Afterwards, I laughed too. Okay, here are just some of my questions. Why was she crying when she was talking to that guy on the phone? What's this lunch break that she talks about? What happened during the lunch break? Why did they laugh so much about their conversation? Because it doesn't sound like it was funny. Why is she surprised that he laughed? Who is grandmother? And are there other things that she's lied about? 
who is this lady named Maria so, and, and what is she so worried about, and who is Dietrich? I know that's a lot of questions all at once, but I, I just need this, this information. I, I, I don't, I, there are a couple of things that I don't understand, and, and I'm hoping that you can help me. So does anybody have answers to those questions that I just asked? Okay. You see, the, the problem that I'm having understanding this passage is not a problem with content, because I understand all the words that the, the author used when she wrote that note. I understand what it means to make a woman cry, believe me. I am an expert at that. And Faith herself will tell you that she's taught me everything that I know about crying women. I also understand, I hope, what it means to make a woman laugh. Though you'd have to ask Faith if I have that down. I know what a lunch break is. I had a grandmother once upon a time. I know Maria and Dietrich are both names, though from this passage I can't tell you who they are or why they may be important to this story. What I'm trying to say is, even though I understand all the words, I don't understand what the passage means. You tracking with me still? So I have to ask if anybody here has any idea where I could find the answers to those questions. If you don't have them, where could I possibly find the answers to those questions that I... I mean, isn't there some way that I can begin to understand what's happening on page 435 of this book? Well, I, <laughs> you're all, I, I know what you said. I didn't hear what actually anybody said. I'd, I'd, I would have to look past the content at the larger context of what we just looked at. I'd have to look past the content at the, to the larger context. That means that there'll be hints to, the, to, to answers to my questions in the passages, the, the paragraphs that are immediately swirling around that one paragraph that I read, but, but I don't think all of the answers are going to be there. Some things are taken for granted by the time you get to page 435 of the book. The paragraphs that immediately precede the paragraph may not help me to understand the paragraph that I just read to you. Let me see if I can illustrate what I mean by that by, by looking with you at, at, at some scripture. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1 says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Paul just drops that question in the middle of nowhere in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And in verse 6, he says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. What I'm suggesting is, in order to truly understand what these verses mean, we'd have to truly understand the lives of Abraham and, the li and, and David. And if we could understand Abraham and David, then we would have answers to the questions that Paul is asking there in Romans chapter 4. And while Genesis won't help us to understand the life of David, I can promise you, I don't often make promises from the pulpit, but I can promise you that if you're here every Sunday, and if you really pay attention, and maybe even get a little crazy and, and I don't know, take some notes of all things, and do some studying on the side to follow up what we've been talking about. By the time that we're done with Genesis, you will fully understand the life of Abraham. I can promise you that. And you'll be able to answer those questions that Paul asked in Romans chapter 4. And as a bonus, by the time we get done with Genesis, you'll also be able to answer some very difficult questions from the book of James. 
And to bring this illustration full circle, let's circle back to the letter that I read. If I were to go back to the beginning of the book, I'd find that the letter was written by a woman named Maria to her soon-to-be husband, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian during the years when the Nazi party was rising to power prior to World War II, but he was more than a theologian. He was a true follower of Christ and one of the first men in Germany to speak against Adolf Hitler and his final solution that called for the extermination of all the Jews in Europe. And Maria, well, she was right to be concerned about her husband's safety because only, after, only a few years after she wrote that letter to him, he became a true martyr for the cause of Christ when he was executed by order of Adolf Hitler. Can you see how, how understanding the context gives life to the passage? Makes it so much more rich and powerful? So sometimes, my problem with understanding the Bible is not that I don't understand the context, the content of the passage, my, my problem is that I don't understand the context of the passage. Maybe, maybe this video will help to persuade you. One of the things that I've come to understand over time is that to communicate effectively, you have to understand context. Has anybody in here ever said something to someone and they understood something totally different? My favorite example of this comes from something I do in my spare time. I happen to work on the finance committee at our church. And I come out of business and when I was preparing the budget several years ago, I went through and looked at all of the costs and all the budget items and then we went over to the tithing, the amount of money that comes in. And because I come out of business, I had two columns. One is year to date, which is YTD. And the other one, because I come out of a business that often works in season, I had another one which was season to date, which is STD. I didn't think this was a problem until I understood that one of the other gentlemen that was on our committee was a physician assistant whose specialty was HIV AIDS. And you should have seen his face. And I came to understand in a very, very quick and personal way that context is significant. Can we just all agree on that, that context is significant? It's important. When it comes to the Bible, you'll always cause trouble for yourself if you try to understand a passage without taking the time to find out and to figure out the context. And as someone who's had the privilege of studying God's Word for more than 55 years now, I can tell you that by far, listen to me, the safest way to approach God's Word is through the front door. In other words, by starting. Understanding of Genesis is basic to an understanding of the entire Word of God, the Bible as a whole. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if you don't understand the book of Genesis, you'll really struggle to understand the epistles that Paul wrote. You can't really fully understand Paul and James until you really fully understand Abraham and Moses. In fact, contexts, and I'll say this as slowly as I can, contexts, passages that are related to the passage that you're trying to figure out, the one that you're studying, will always be infinitely more helpful to you than any commentary you may have at your disposal. You say that again. Contexts. Passages that are related to the passage you're studying 
will always be infinitely more helpful to you than any commentary you may have at your disposal. And I mean that quite literally. In fact, commentaries are literally the last place I look when I'm trying to understand a passage. I look at commentaries last because I would rather what, discover what Paul has to say about the passage that I'm studying than to, than to try to understand what, what any other commentator, no matter how well-trusted he is, or he or she is, I'd rather understand what Paul has to say about this passage than what that commentator over there has to say about that same passage. And that's why Brian and I are always asking you to study the Scripture on your own. To look carefully, because Brian and I are nothing more than commentators. That's all we are, is we try to parse God's Word for you. We want you to take the time to make sure that everything that we say is true and accurate. So it's vitally important that we understand the context of any passage if we ever hope to understand the passage itself. And as we make our way through Genesis, we'll start unpacking every new passage by reviewing what we learned when we unpacked the passage from the previous week. That's our habit here. And it's in order to establish the context so that you know that, that next week when Brian speaks, Brian will review what I said this week. When I speak the following week, I'll review what Brian said next, what Brian said next week. But you know what I mean. It's, uh, I'm, I'm mixing my tenses there. But as we all know, as we all know, that there's a problem when it comes to Genesis and context. Because Genesis 1-1 is the first verse in the Bible. There are no verses before Genesis 1-1. That's why there was no review this morning, but, but it can also make it difficult to establish a context. Um, as we all know, Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning. And I've, I've just said that you need to be culturally literate and that you need to understand the context of any passage uh, that we're unpacking. But how do we... How do we do that when we're looking at the first verse in the Bible? What is the context for the first verse in the Bible? Well, we do that by not actually starting Genesis until next week when Brian will take on the passage that begins. And this week, I'll try to provide you with the background that you'll need to begin to understand the passage that Brian will tackle next week. So in the spirit of cultural literacy and context, I can tell you that there is a story from God's Word that will provide us with background, the background that we need as we begin to study Genesis next week. The events of the story that I'm going to tell you this morning predate the, the events of the book of Genesis. The events of the story for this morning took place in a time before the beginning that's described in Genesis 1.1. And understanding those events will help us to appreciate What's about to happen as God undertakes to create man in his own image? It will also give us some perspective on one of the players who's about to take the stage, take the field there in the Garden of Eden. You see, before God created the heavens and the earth, he created a vast array of angels. There were common angels, if there's ever such a thing as a common angel, but uh, there were angels that were called seraphim. There were the mighty cherubim. And another class of angels that are known as archangels. They were the mightiest of them all. And there was one angel that stood out above all the rest. God called him the guardian cherub. And as we try to understand this story this morning, it's important that we understand that a cherub is not a baby with puffy cheeks. Don't, don't even go there because it's not going to make any sense relative to this story. 
In fact, no angel looks like a baby with puffy cheeks. I hate to ruin Valentine's Day for you, but as the story begins, this one for this morning, we need to know that throughout Scripture, anyone who has ever even seen a cherub has been terrified to the point of being speechless and actually passing out. And we have to add here that the guardian cherub was the most intimidating of all. His name was Lucifer, a name that means son of the morning. He was staggeringly beautiful to look at, magnificent in his glory and in his beauty. But there's one more thing that you need to know about Lucifer, and and that's that he was not content to be the biggest and best and brightest of the angels. He wanted more. And with that background, This is the story from God's Word taken from Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12. Sometime after God created Lucifer and the other angels, Lucifer allowed pride to fill his heart. Admittedly, Lucifer was the most awe-inspiring of all the angelic beings and even held sway over the other angels, a, a privilege that had been given to him by God himself. In time, though, At the time, time didn't exist yet, Lucifer began to be consumed with thoughts of his own greatness. Make no mistake about this, he was indeed legendary. But for reasons we'll never fully understand, Lucifer let his magnificence go to his head. He began to circulate among the other angels with the intention of deceiving them. He wanted them to be as taken with his greatness as he was, as he himself was, with his own greatness. All of this was driven by a conversation that he had had with himself in his own heart. A conversation that had taken place in the depths of his own heart, though God knew what he was thinking all along. In that conversation, he set a number of goals for himself, and each of them began with the words, I will. I will ascend above the heights of the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Lucifer managed to deceive one-third of the angels of heaven, but he didn't fool the one who already was the most high. God, the most high, banished Lucifer from heaven along with all the angels that Lucifer had deceived. Lucifer fell from heaven into outer darkness like a bolt of lightning. That's how Jesus described it. I saw Lucifer fall like a bolt of lightning. And there Lucifer waited for God to make his next move. And that's the story from God's Word. I want us all to take a couple of minutes to notice that in those goals that Lucifer set for himself, he didn't say that he would make himself like the most wise or like the most knowledgeable or like the most creative. That wasn't in his heart at all. And he didn't say he would make himself like the most holy, and he didn't say he would make himself like the most powerful. He didn't say any of those things. Instead, he said, I will make myself like the most High. He's not talking about wisdom or knowledge or creativity or holiness or power, all things that we would consider to be attributes of God. That's not what Lucifer is after. 
He's not talking about any of those things when he says, I will ascend to the heights of the heavens, or I will raise my throne above the stars, or I will sit enthroned on the mount, or I'll ascend above the top of the clouds, or especially when he says, I will make myself like the most high. It's not wisdom or knowledge or holiness or even power that he's talking about when he says those things. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about authority. That's what he's talking about. He wants to be in charge. He wants to sit at the top of his own personal kingdom. He wants to exercise authority in the same way that the Most High exercises authority. And how did God respond to Lucifer's desire for independence? How did he respond to his desire to be in charge of his own personal world? God blasted him right out of heaven along with all the angels who chose to follow Lucifer's authority. And that's how the kingdom of darkness got its start. And that means, hear this, that the kingdom of darkness was in place before the king of the universe created the universe. Satan had already fallen into outer darkness. Lucifer, whom we now call Satan and the devil, will be lurking near earth when God speaks it into being. And he will be prowling and skulking on the outskirts of the Garden of Eden on the sixth day of creation when God creates human beings to bear his own image. Let's make one that's like us, one that will bear our image, God will say. Pay attention to that. So what does all that mean? Well, it means, among other things, that You're going to have to come back next week to hear more of the context for for Genesis. But for now, let's just say that evil began when Lucifer made his plans and evil spread from that day until this and evil will be present with us as long as Lucifer, that old devil, is on the loose. It's the story of Lucifer that provides the context for our study next week that will begin with the words in the beginning. But in the meantime, I want you to think about how important it is that we understand the context of the stories that come up from God's Word if we're ever to understand the Bible. And I want you to recognize that these stories from God's Word form the context of your own life as well. Because Adam and Eve's story and Abraham and Sarah's story, it's your story. You are as entitled to that sweetness and that power as they were when God first told the story to them. It's all, all of that is part of your story. This morning, God's about to interact with individuals and couples and and families, and he's going to tell his story to them. And as he does that, he will tell his story through them, and they'll have no idea, any more than Ruth did, if you were here for that study, they'll have no idea that that's what's happening. They'll have no idea that 4,000 years later, we'd still be naming the name Abraham. Please catch that cadence. God told his story to and through the people we'll meet in Genesis, and today God plans to interact with you and your family in exactly the same way. God will bless your faith in him just like he blessed the faith of those men and women because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't deal differently with us than he did with them. There's a story that I 
that I wanted, I, I would love to be able to tell this story my, myself. I can't. Uh, not, not the way this guy is about to tell it. I'm going to invite somebody up here onto the platform with me, and he's going to tell the story. And <laughs> those of you who, are, are, who talked to me at all during this week are probably in sheer panic. The, the guy that's going to tell the story is not actually with us this morning. We have him on video. There's a 10-minute video that I, that I want you to watch because, because what this man is going to do is tell us the story of God beginning in the ages of eternity past and carrying us all the way through to the moment when we finally stand around the throne. In 10 minutes, he'll take us from creation to the final advent of the kingdom of God. And as you'll see, it's a story like no other. And I have to say that Matt Papa, who is about to do this for us, uh, tells this so beautifully and powerfully that you just have to hear it from him, even if it does take 10 minutes. Stay awake. It's worth it. Matt Papa. The story of God. Ordinary, from which every other story hails. It's the story of God. It's the story of history. And I'm not the author, no. The author is a glorious mystery. See, long before he would put his pen to the paper, long before there was time, or before there was matter, he was there all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, everlasting in existence, completely satisfied, needing absolutely nothing. He was happy in himself and his joy was overflowing. The Son in the arms of his holy, righteous Father, the Spirit overshadowing, all glorifying one another. So why would this God even bother to create the fountain of all happiness? Can you improve upon this state? Well, the joy within himself welling up at such capacity was so full it must be shared with a glorious society. So the mighty author, quill in hand, to share his infinite mind, his love, his joy, sat down to write his once upon a time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things to reflect his beauty and his worth. Mountains, rivers, oceans, trees, all gladly testifying. Endless stars and galaxies declare his glory shining. He made it all and it was good. And to culminate his work, he fashioned man and breathed to life his special ball of dirt. Man came to life with blinking eyes and was welcomed by God's face. They walked with him every day and night. There was peace and no such thing as shame. God said, be fruitful, fill the earth, and eat from any tree, except for this one, because if you do, you'll surely fall from me. Now, why do this and give this choice? Because he is writing a story, and he's about to show the whole world the fullness of his glory. Conflict enters early on in the script with a snake in the garden doing what he does best, running his lip. Flashback to when this evil was created. He was an angel of heaven who fell when his head got inflated. Banished from God and from his endless mercy, he came down to earth to tempt us with the unworthy. So there in the garden on an ordinary day, he came to the woman and said, Did God really say that you should not eat from every tree in the garden? He must not want your happiness or you'd have total freedom. So pridefully they listened, sinfully they took, and scorned their creator as they ate forbidden fruit. Injustice, my friends, this is injustice. That God should be seen and then treated as a nothing. That man should completely forfeit his joy and dig for fleeting pleasures in the gutters of this world. Fallen now is all mankind and sure to face his judgment. A world of pain, of toil and strain and hell forever after. But God would make a promise to preserve himself a people. And through the brokenness of man, oh, could there shine a hero? The plot line continues, some character development, all supporting actors, all fantastic as embellishment. 
Noah found favor in God's holy sight, and when God sent the floods, he mercifully preserved his life. We come to Abraham, and God made him a covenant. He said, I will bless you, make your offspring abundant. To Isaac and to Jacob, God will come and do the same, and though many dangers came to threaten his perfect plan, the story would go on with the author's full control, and he would lead his people everywhere that they should go. Flash forward now, 400 years, in Egypt there's a Pharaoh who doesn't like God's people growing numerous in freedom. He made them slaves, but God came down and chose his servant Moses, a burning bush, a call to go his presence was his promise Moses tell that Pharaoh now to let my people go so they can freely worship me in the place that I will show plagues numerous God will prove that he is the I am that Pharaoh's rule is like a pawn in his glorious hand the waters part the millions leave to follow their great Savior he guided them provided for them though they were so ungrateful at Sinai God gave the law so perfect and so pure his people soon discovered though they could not obey these rules they tried they failed they tried they failed compelled to live in sin they'd bow to worship idols and they'd bow to God again they said to God give us a king and that will make things better God their rightful king assured them this would be a fetter they insisted, God relented, gave to them their kings. Some were good, led them to him, some brought idolatry. Then came the prophets, turn back to God. Sometimes the people listened, but mostly they just gave a nod because they all wanted to be him. God will not wink at your sin, the prophets would all say. The people rose to eat and drink, they left to go and play. God finally seemed to have enough and brought a blaring quiet. The prophets ceased, the people waited 400 years of silence. Enter our protagonist, mostly unannounced. The plot is quickly rising now. Who is this guy? Nobody really knows. He's meek, he's humble, unordinary hero. But the craziest thing about this character is, well, unlike the other characters, this is the author himself. His name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin, fully God. He was perfect, fully man. He was learning, different from all the others, but tempted just the same in every single way we are, yet without a single sin. He made the lame to jump and he caused the blind to see. And unlike the religious leaders, he had some real authority because he came from on high and he came to redeem, not to be served, but to serve his haters and enemies. He loved, he gave, showed us the heart of the author. Claimed no glory for himself because he came from his father and we hated him for it because we wanted to be God. Despised and rejected, we esteemed him not. Conflict escalating now. It starts with a betrayal. Judas whores his eternal Lord for 30 pieces of silver. A final meal of prayer and then they head into the garden where Jesus sweat with drops of blood preparing for our pardon. The soldiers took the Lord away and led him to a trial. Are you the son of God? They say I am. There's no denying. Except of course for his disciples who left their Lord in fear. Jesus looked up to the sky. He was all alone from here. They led him to the praetorium and then they began to beat him. Who hit you? They would shout and say, oh father, please forgive him. They made his back a bloody mess. They whipped him till he lost his breath. They threw the cross upon his wounds, the weight of sin, 300 pounds. The great eternal Lord of all, the author of all things, now like a lamb to the slaughter. Would this be his defeat? They nailed him to the rugged cross. They shouted out, where is your God? He said, have you forsaken me? He takes a breath, his final three. It is finished. The Savior's cry. And then he bowed his head. The author of life, the Lord of all, the Son of God, is dead. They laid his body in a tomb. Then everything was quiet as God's people find themselves again in everlasting silence. Two days pass. 
On the second morning after Jesus died, Mary went to the tomb to take a look inside. And when she arrived, she was met by an angel. She fell to the ground, but he said, there's no danger. This Jesus, Jesus, is he the one you seek? Mary, he is not here. He is risen indeed. Climax is true. Every good story has one. That part where you feel a slight shift of momentum. Mary sprints to go tell the other disciples, the Lord, he's alive. He's alive like he promised. Peter and John go to see for themselves, but there's nothing there. Perhaps he truly lives in Jesus' words came flashing to mind. They will kill the Son of Man, but after three days, he will rise. Momentum is surely building now. The enemy is limping. Jesus finds the 12, and then he gives to them the mission. All authority is mine, all in heaven and on earth. Go and tell them I'm alive. Go and tell the whole wide world, and don't get slack. I'm coming back. Acts now, the church is born, the Holy Spirit given. The news of Jesus, like the most contagious sickness spreading. Thousands saved, a mighty wind is blowing through the region. The promise God gave to Abraham, we're finally starting to see it. Repentance and forgiveness preached all in the name of Jesus. Sinners and saints alike proclaim our God has come to save us. The Gentiles hear the story and the news is blowing up. The plan is working, gospel spreading from Asia to Africa. Martyrs laying down their lives because they know this story is true. It's a story like no other. It's a movement you cannot undo. Constantine tried to slow it down and turn it into steeples, but an angry monk from Germany wrote some holy gospel thesis. It spread like fire and then it came to America by sale and here we are the 21st century because the gospel cannot fail it's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known but there is some still left to go yes there is some still left to go see go was the command to every tribe and nation to carry this great story to this dying generation because when this gospel finally spreads across the whole of earth we're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will return heaven will be opened and a white horse shall appear and the one who sits upon it all his enemies shall fear his eyes will be like fire and his purpose will be glory justice for all evil life for all who love this story He'll come to judge the quick, the dead, and all who trod this world. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Death and Hades he will throw into the lake of fire, and Satan too, that serpent foe, that coward, that old liar. The church will rise, surround the throne, and clothed in glory his. With every tribe and tongue, we will worship him, singing, worthy, worthy is the lamb, the lamb who has been slain. Blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name, and for ages and ages we will sing the praises of our God and King. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. Yeah, the bad guys lose, the good guys win. Jesus is Lord of all the end. I get goose pimples on my duck bumps when I listen to that. I listen to it regularly because I want to remind myself that I'm part of something grand. I'm part of a story that's being told around the world of a victor who, who, who won, who succeeded, who vanquished by surrendering. And I want, you to, I want you to understand today that if you're a follower of Jesus, that video also tells your story. You know, one day Jesus said to his followers, my father is always at work. And that's as true today as it was when Jesus first said it. God's continuing to accomplish his plan around planet Earth with every moment of every day that passes. And remarkably, remarkably, he's inviting us to be part of that 
with him. He's inviting us to be part of his story. Everything that happens to you, good or bad, forms a part of the story that he is telling to you and a part of the story that he's telling through you as well. I want you to understand this morning that you are absolutely important to the story God is telling in in the world today. The role that you or I play is is smaller perhaps than the one that Noah or, or Abraham or Moses or Paul played. But having said that, let me say this. Your part may be smaller, but it is no less important. Don't forget that God is not only telling a story to you, He is telling a story through you. And that makes you vitally important to the people that God is speaking to through your life. And that makes me want to ask you, when was the last time you told someone else the story of the day that God redeemed you? Genesis will help us to understand the story of redemption. And understanding that story is key to understanding how we can impact the lives of those that are around us. So join us every Sunday in 2024 as we work through a book that I think will repeatedly surprise you, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father, our God, we bless your name today for the story that you've told us. Thousands of years in the making, all a cast of supporting characters, supporting actors. And God, we are continually amazed, awestruck, that you, as the author, finally appeared on the stage and did what only you could do. You redeemed us. You reconciled us to God, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that. Father, you've given us now the ministry of reconciliation. And so as this story continues, as it comes to us from Genesis, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and and so many other characters, God, as it comes to us through Genesis, we pray that it would flow out of us, God, through our own story. Teach us that the gospel is not a method, it's a message. And send us out into the neighborhood around us. For the sake of your glory, for the good of those that that we might talk to, and for our good as well, teach us to be storytellers of the good news. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're heading out into the world out there. I want to ask you, encourage you, find somebody this week and tell them your story. Just engage them in casual conversation and tell them your story. And may God bless you and guide you and direct you and allow you to feel his love as you go. We're dismissed.